Hello, and welcome to Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. On today's installment of Alert, we'll be speaking with Diana Bronson of the ETC, or Etc. Group, on her recent Canadian Dimension article on geoengineering, Plan B for the climate crisis. Then we'll be speaking with Sarah Granke of Rebels on the new feminism. And finally, we'll speak with Grand Chief Ron Evans on the current situation involving the lack of running water and adequate sanitation facilities on First Nations reserves across Canada. Here are the alert headlines for the week of November 18th, 2010. Food Banks Canada made several recommendations to address the issue, including implementing a national poverty prevention and reduction strategy, creating a federal housing strategy, maintaining current levels of federal transfer payments to provincial, territorial, and First Nations governments, and addressing rates of low income among seniors. Around a dozen men who accused British security forces of colluding in their transfer overseas are to get millions in compensation from the UK government. Some of the men, who are all British citizens or residents, were detained at the Guantanamo Bay prison camp in Cuba. At least six of them alleged UK forces were complicit in their torture before they arrived at Guantanamo. World leaders have welcomed the release of Burmese pro-democracy leader Aung San Suu Kyi, Ms. Suu Kyi emerged from the last seven years of house arrest to address her supporters at the front of her home in Rangoon. The opposition leader, who has spent 15 of the last 21 years in detention, then went back inside her home, promising to address another rally outside her National League for Democracy's headquarters. However, there is concern that Ms. Suu Kyi may be re-arrested if she becomes too political, as has happened in the past. The UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon says it is a positive sign but has expressed regret Ms. Suu Kyi was not allowed to contest last week's elections. A U.S. drone attack in the Pakistani region of North Waziristan has killed at least 20 people. Pakistani intelligence officials say the victims were alleged militants who had crossed over the Afghan border. But Al Jazeera reports women and children were among the dead when a missile killed 16 people inside a single home. Clashes have erupted between protesters and UN troops in Haiti amidst rising unrest over a cholera outbreak that's killed more than 900 people. On November 15th, two people were killed in a protest at a UN peacekeeping base in the city of Cap Hatien. Nepalese troops stationed there have been accused of inadvertently bringing the cholera outbreak to Haiti. Health experts have said the cholera strain is uncharacteristic of Haiti and the Caribbean but closely matches the Nepalese troops' home region. Over 14,600 people have been treated with cholera-like symptoms and cases have now been reported in all 10 of Haiti's provinces. The European Union will not survive if it fails to overcome a debt crisis plaguing the euro single currency area, the bloc's president, Herman van Rompuy, has said. Hours from a meeting of finance ministers in Brussels, van Rompuy said that the EU and Eurozone were in danger from alarm in the financial markets. 
The meeting was called to grapple with an exploding debt crisis that has already brought Greece to its knees and now threatens Ireland and Portugal. Van Rompuy's stark warning raises the stakes after an admission by Ireland that it was holding talks about a possible rescue, six months after the international partners had to rush to aid Greece with a $150 billion bailout. Ireland, Greece, and Portugal are the weakest links in a chain of debt coursing through the 16 nations that share the euro currency, with almost every other member of the European Union bursting at fiscal seams. Palestinians are voicing outrage over a sweeping package of U.S. incentives to coax Israel to partially freeze settlement expansion for just three months. The Obama administration is reportedly offered to give Israel 20 advanced F-35 warplanes worth around $3 billion and to veto U.N. resolutions seeking Middle East peace. The freeze would not be extended after 90 days and also would not apply to occupied East Jerusalem. Palestinian lawmaker Hanan Ashrawi said Israel was being rewarded for agreeing to temporarily pause the seizure of occupied land. Those were the alert headlines for this week. And now for Around the Left in Seven Days for the week of November 18, 2010. Former British MP George Galloway appears in 10 cities on a cross-Canada speaking tour from November 16th to 27th. Galloway will speak about the Canadian government's attempts to ban him from the country, as well as the political situation in the Middle East and Central Asia. The Free Palestine, Free Afghanistan, Free Speech Tour began on the 17th in Montreal and includes stops in Halifax, Toronto, Hamilton, Vancouver, Calgary, Yellowknife, Edmonton, Winnipeg, and finally in Ottawa on the 27th. For more information, go to defendfreespeech.ca. November 20th, 2010 marks the 6th annual Winnipeg Transgender Day of Remembrance and the 12th annual International TDOR. This day serves as an opportunity to recognize, honor, embrace, celebrate, and remember the people who encounter or endure discrimination, prejudice, persecution, isolation, or violence because of their gender identity and or expression. Meet at the Circle of Life Thunderbird House in Winnipeg on November 20th at 5 o'clock p.m. to be a part of the service. The 2010 Canadian Labour International Film Festival is happening in Toronto on the weekends of November 20th and 21st and the 27th and 28th. There are over 50 films this year that document the struggle of workers all over the world. For a list of films and locations, go to labourfilms.ca. Hanin Zoabi is the first Palestinian-Israeli woman elected to sit in the Israeli Knesset as a representative of an Arab party. Ms. Zoabi will be the keynote speaker for Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East's annual fundraising tour. Ms. Zoabi will speak about the challenges she faces as a Palestinian leader in Israel proper, her experiences as an eyewitness during Israel's attack on the Gaza aid flotilla on May 31st, and about the elements essential to a resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The fundraising dinner is set for Ottawa on November 18th, Toronto on the 19th, and in Montreal on the 20th. Go to cjpme.org for more details. Todd Gordon, author of Imperialist Canada, will be speaking in Winnipeg on November 25th to promote his new book. 
Imperialist Canada debunks Canada's image as a global peacekeeper and promoter of human rights and reveals the links between corporate pursuit of profit and Canadian foreign and domestic policy. Gordon will be speaking at 2.30 p.m. on the 25th at the University of Manitoba and later that day at 7 o'clock p.m. at the University of Winnipeg. Check out A-R-B-E-I-T-E-R-R-I-N-G dot com for more details. Everyone's Downstream is an international conference in Edmonton on resistance to the tar sands. This year's themes include Tar Sands Go Global, Building Accountable Movements, and Ongoing Resistance, Communities Fighting Pipelines, Refineries, and Other Tar Sands Infrastructure. The conference is held at the Engineering, Teaching, and Learning Complex at the University of Alberta from November 25th to 28th. Go to everyonesdownstream.org for more details. On November 27th at the Cecil Street Community Centre in Toronto, the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty will be holding a party to celebrate the struggles and victories of the past 20 years. OCAP has fought its way through two decades of offensive capitalism that have presented great challenges to our movements and to building and sustaining effective resistance. The party starts at 6.30. Admission is by donation. And that's Around the Left in Seven Days for the week of November 18th, 2010. Diana Bronson is with the ETC Group at its Montreal offices. For 25 years, ETC has been advocates on global issues such as the conservation of agricultural biodiversity and food security and on the impact of new technologies on the rural poor. Since the early 1980s, ETC has conducted groundbreaking research, education, and successful social action on issues involving agricultural biodiversity, biotechnology, intellectual property, and community knowledge systems. In the 1990s, its work expanded to encompass social and environmental concerns related to biotechnology, biopiracy, human genomics, and in the late 1990s, to nanotechnology. In the November issue of Canadian Dimension, Diana wrote an article called Geoengineering, Plan B for the Climate Crisis. And it is about the so-called geoengineering solution to climate change that we are going to talk to her today. Welcome to Alert, Diana Bronson. Thanks, Michael. Now, um, there was a, a recent announcement with regard to the whole issue of uh, geoengineering uh, as uh, basically a mechanism for mitigating the, the climate change crisis. Uh, could you maybe just uh, discuss, well, maybe you should just describe, first of all, what is meant by the term geoengineering? Yeah, sure. Mo most people have never, uh, never heard of it, in fact. Um, it, geoengineering refer to, refers to large-scale plans to intentionally modify the climate um, by doing things like putting sulfates in the stratosphere to reflect more sunlight away from the Earth, so you disguise the effect of global warming that is caused by excess greenhouse gases. There's many different technologies, um, sort of a, a dozen top ones. Some of them involve, uh, for example, fertilizing the oceans with uh, iron, so-called nutrients, that would provoke growth of algae, that would sequester carbon dioxide that theoretically would then sink to the seabed. Um, there's uh, schemes to whiten clouds, again, to make uh, the, the sky more reflective and less, let less sunlight uh, down to earth. 
So there's a whole lot of these different techno fixes um, that are being discussed by a small group of, uh, of lobbyists and scientists and engineers and business people who are hoping to make money off the carbon markets through these techni- technical fixes. So the, the traditional approach to dealing with the, the climate crisis is to try to lessen our impact on the, the atmosphere. And it sounds as if uh, geoengineering is actually about increasing our impact, but trying to get a different result. Yeah, about trying to, um, trying to control the impact, but it really is within the same mindset, not of lightening the footprint, but of, if you will, of even having a heavier footprint and actually trying to take control of something as complex as the climate system, you know, mm-hmm. basically the weather over the longer term. So it involves controlling the temperature, controlling the rains, controlling um, um, massive complex ecosystems with um, therefore very, very great dangers inherent in the development of any of these schemes. Well, okay, let's just, for the, the, for the sake of argument, try to give some credit to their argument. Look, we've known about this climate problem, the climate crisis for some time now, uh, decades, and uh, the, the, the things have gotten worse. So, you know, as they say, desperate times call for desperate measures. You know, why would we not at least contemplate the idea of a, of a plan B that, uh, that, that would possibly go along with, uh, you, know, you know, efforts to reduce our uh, CO2 impact? Yeah, I don't think there's any um, problem really with contemplating a plan B. The problem is really moving ahead on plan B and experimenting with plan B and also by promoting the existence of this uh, Plan B, undermining any efforts or political will that does exist, insufficient as it is, to get on with the problem of, of mitigation. Um, ma- many uh, geoengineers will attack us and say we're anti-science or anti-research, and this is just absolutely false. Um, that is not where our objections lie in people doing theoretical modeling or laboratory tests. Our objections lie in moving uh, these technologies out to testing uh, on the one and only planet we happen to have to live on, planet Earth, um, and, 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 and testing them. And because they're such large and massive schemes, um, even the tests could have very dramatic negative impacts, uh, in particular in, in, in people in southern countries. Um, the very people, who, the, the, the people who are um, looking at these technologies and promoting the development of them and lobbying for more research money are virtually all located in wealthy, high-emissions countries. And there's been very, very little dialogue uh, with the Global South about what the impacts might be on them. And really, that we had quite a groundbreaking development uh, just two weeks ago now at the Convention on Biological Diversity, where for the first time ever, uh, governments from around the world had a chance to uh, to grapple with this issue. Um, could you maybe explain how far along, because this isn't something that just came up yesterday. I mean, there, this is something that's been, they, they've been at work at this for some time, the, ge- the geoengineering lobby. I mean, how much progress have they made uh, in, uh, I guess, in technological and in political terms? Well, for for a long time, uh, it was just considered a bunch of sci-fi nutcase scenarios. You know, it wasn't considered at all uh, something that was worthy of consideration of con- credible scientists or policymakers or governments. 
And what happened was in, in 2009, the UK Royal Society published a um, rather a landmark report on geoengineering that, while it had many precautionary statements in it, had the net effect of making this whole um, industry credible in the eyes of, of policymakers and other scientists. And that was kind of like a, a great leap forward uh, for geoengineering. And, and that combined with, you know, the dramatic failure of Copenhagen to reach um, an agreement on, on mitigation and reducing carbon emissions uh, really did a lot to, to bolster uh, the credibility and the resources and the, um, the willingness to listen to the geoengineering lobby uh, in, once again, in, in, in northern countries, in North America, Europe, Australia. Okay, why don't you try to paint a, a worst case scenario for us? I mean, what what are the possible hazards that could result if uh, if the when we like, the geoengineers are putting forward their very bright silver, you know, wonderful scenarios where things where we're able to adjust things properly? But what if they're wrong? What what's the opposite uh, projection? Well, I mean, e- each of the technologies has a different set of risks, if you will. Um, all of them contain a certain risk for international insecurity and war and instability because there will be um, wars will be fought over who gets to control the thermostat. Is it going to be Russia? Is it going to be the United States? Is it going to be China? Is it going to be someone else? Um, so, so that's sort of something that 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 uh, they all carry within them. Um, but for example, one of the leading technologies that are pe- that people are very anxious to get on with experimenting is this notion of putting sulfates into the stratosphere. And um, the problem with doing that, there there are many problems that uh, you know inherent in doing that. One of which is you can't really turn it off once you start doing it. There are many logistical problems. But it's also we know from uh, natural volcanoes that have occurred that it will affect the, the rain patterns. Um, it will affect the Indian and African monsoons. And when you start messing with people's monsoons and rain supply, you're messing with their food supply. And according to some modeling studies, and models are complicated things, and they do give different results at different times, but some of the studies by, for example, Alan Robach, show that um, even a, an experimental um, um, attempt to put sulfates in the stratosphere could threaten the food supplies of up to 2 billion people. So that's why we feel, along with many scientists and other people who have studied this question, that we should not be allowed, that geoengineers should not be allowed to experiment these technologies in the real world, at the very least, until the real world, including governments, all governments in the world and civil society and organizations, indigenous peoples and so on, have had a chance to uh, to talk about the implications and decide whether or not we want to go down that road. Now, uh, just recently, as we mentioned at the outset, there was a, a moratorium that was imposed on uh, geoengineering. So is that uh, uh, what is your read on uh, the uh, success, as it were, in uh, banning this uh, technological innovation? Yeah, it, it's not a ban. It's a moratorium. So it's a stopgap measure. It's a temporary thing uh, that, that'll go on. It's a huge step forward in that it does put the brakes on, uh, on it for a bit, and it, gives, uh, it buys us some time uh, to talk through some of the issues um, that are involved. 
It's really a big success for us. It buys us some time. It puts the brakes on uh, geoengineering experiment. It gives us something to stand on if anybody does try and go ahead with a geoengineering experiment despite the moratorium. creates a great deal of diplomatic pressure on all the members of the Convention on Biological Diversity, which is the vast majority of governments in the world. So um, it's a good start. But what we really need is a mechanism whereby technologies can be properly evaluated before they're deployed on the, mar- uh, on the marketplace so we don't run into this kind of problem. Okay, well, on that note, I'd like to thank you very much for joining us, uh, Diana Bronson, for uh, explaining the situation, and we'll see how it progresses uh, as we move forward. So thank you for joining us on Alert. Thanks for having me. Take care. And uh, Diana Bronson is with the e- Etc. Group in Montreal, and uh, her article, Geoengineering Plan B for the Climate Crisis, appears in the November issue of Canadian Dimension magazine. Sarah K. Granke is an organizer of the Rebels Gathering uh, and is a member of Winnipeg's FemRev. She was one of the main editors involved in putting together Canadian Dimension's new November-December issue on new feminism. Hi, Sarah K. Thanks for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. Now, tell us about what distinguishes Rebels from the second wave feminism that people are most familiar with, aside from, obviously, the youth of its membership. So I guess... For us, it's hard to compare because within the second wave feminism, um, there are lots of different tendencies and theories. And the point for us is not necessarily that we're different, but the point for us is that right now we're seeing, we've seen a lack of unified movement and action, um, specifically among young women in Canada. And that's one of the big reasons that we're organizing and calling women to mobilize. Um, a big priority for the rebels movement um, that was not always a given in the second wave movements of feminism um, is the intersectionality of oppressions. So looking at how class, how sexuality, how race, um, gender expression and ability, and how all of these things intertwine um, and affect us as women, and not just the fact that we're women and therefore we all experience the same oppressions, but looking at all these other forms of oppression and how they interlink. And that's something that was not always a given um, within the second wave of feminism. And based on this, um, it's really necessary for the rebellion movement to root our, our anti-patriarchal struggle um, in a larger fight against all different kinds of systems of oppressions, um, whether it be capitalism or racism, imperialism, heterosexism, whatever, whatever it be. Um, and though we need... Um, to look, we need to look at the struggles and victories as well as the mistakes um, or errors, if it be, um, of our feminist foremothers or the women that came before us um, to, to look to these, um, these struggles and the victories um, and to learn from them. Um, and Rebels Movement is clearing a new path and we're trying to evolve um, as part of this historical movement. So it's less about the difference in waves but looking at how we are now, um, I guess, um, I don't know if it's all different because we, we learn and things evolve, but the Rebels Movement is very radical. We're anti-hierarchical, anti-capitalist, anti-colonialist, um, clearly anti-patriarchal. Um, and we work in a grassroots, action-oriented um, fashion and trying to make it as diverse and disruptive um, and explosive and welcoming and as celebratory and as fun as possible. So, um, so, yeah, I guess that's what I want to focus more of. 
on and less looking at the differences and knowing that we need to learn from um, and that we will do things differently, but that, um, yeah, we want to focus more on what we are doing now and look at it less in terms of ways and just evolving. Now, can you can you take us through this special issue of Canadian Dimension? What are some of the major articles and why were they specifically chosen for inclusion? Um, yeah, absolutely. So I guess if we look at the issue, it starts off with a little bit brief introduction, um, kind of looking at the context of why. Um, why is it important to look at feminism today? We hear the question so often, uh, feminism isn't that dead, what's the purpose? Um, and so in that, we kind of say, well, heck yes, we still need feminism. Um, then we move into an introduction about the rebels movement, um, because there's a lot of people that don't know what rebels is, um, as it's a fairly young, fairly new movement. So it focuses on what we stand for, what we're fighting for, um, and a little bit about our basis of unity and why we think it's important to be around and be active. Um, and then there's also a little bit, some highlights of the work of the Rebels Collectives across the country, um, from the Yukon to New Brunswick, um, to Ontario, to Winnipeg. Um, and then what we move into is, I guess Rebels Movement really focuses on a few different areas. So looking at patriarchy, looking at capitalism, um, looking at colonialism and racism and how these impact our lives as women and in general. Um, so we have an, ocus, um, an article that focuses um, on patriarchy and how this impacts women, looking at bodies and um, the choices we have around our bodies, as well as violence against women. The capitalism article really focuses on how do we resist right now and how are we creating alternatives. Um, and then there's an article as well on colonialism and racism um, and specifically focusing on why this is incredibly important within the feminist movement to focus on because if we do look historically, um, we have often had racism incorporated into our feminism. And so have, having a focus on, uh, like we need to be aware and we need to be critical um, in order to include all women. So um, a focus on these three areas was really important for us to include because they're part of our basis of unity. They're part of what we believe in um, as a movement. Um, then we also have a section um, that we've titled Fertile Debate because, you know, within any movement, um, and specifically within the feminist movement, there's always been, de been debates over different issues and theories. Um, and these fertile debates, as we like to call them, they help us to learn and grow and to shape our movements. Um, and it's really important that we recognize that there are lots of different interpretations of feminism um, and that we celebrate and integrate this diversity into our feminism. And as a movement, we're committed to the continual expansion of the plurality of our voices. And so we want to engage in a continual process of critical self-reflection um, and all this to, to transform not only our movement but our, our feminisms. Um, so we have uh, a section, and two of the articles within that section um, are focused on sex work. Um, specifically when, within the feminist movement, there are lots of different positions on sex work. So we wanted to highlight two of the different positions um, so that voices of different women um, can be heard and shared. I'm going to get you to talk about the Rebels Gathering next May. But first, tell our readers about some of the other activities that Rebels has been involved in. Um, absolutely. Um, I guess I'll focus mostly on the last year. Um, we have three main priorities for action, um, and those are focused on, around the Olympics, the G20, and the World March of Women. So around the Olympics, there were some different educational campaigns. Some women were at the Olympics. There were lots of demonstrations happening throughout the country um, against the Olympics because they're capitalist and racist and um, 
and it was really important for us to take a stand against this. Um, when the G20 came around, a lot of us were involved um, in G20 resistance actions, not only in Toronto, but across the country in solidarity um, events and actions and demonstrations. And we also produced um, some, some educational tools and analysis with a, a feminist perspective. And then this past October... Um, was the final week of the World March of Women, which is an international um, grassroots feminist or, or feminist movement. And there were events all, all across the world on every single continent. And in Quebec, um, in specific, there were actions um, every single day and marches every single day um, to highlight the importance of their um, of the demands that they'd presented not only to the Quebec government but to the federal government. Um, and so there was an occupation that three rebels were part of, and it was an occupation of the, um, the, the Office of the Status of Women um, minister. And then there was also um, a march with 10,000 women in Rimouski, um, and uh, many different rebels were a part of that as well. So Winnipeg's FemRev is organizing the second Pan-Canadian Rebels Gathering in May 2011 in Winnipeg. Can you give us some more information on that and how people can get involved? Yes, absolutely. Um, so the gathering is going to be held um, from May 20th to 23rd in 2011, so coming up very soon. Um, so the gathering is going to be a four-day participatory event um, for young women to network, to learn about feminism, to share our reflections and analysis on different issues that affect us as young women um, from diverse backgrounds. So there's going to be workshops, there's going to be plenary sessions, there's going to be um, a large-scale action. Um, it's going to be a lot of opportunity to not only share struggles and discuss strategies for resistance um, and combating patriarchy and other forms of oppression, but it's also going to be a place to create solidarity between young women and reinforce the rebels young um, young feminist movement. And so um, it's going to be incredibly fun, incredibly participatory workshops um, will be put on by participants at the gathering. Um, it's open to all young women, um, whether you identify as feminist or not. If you're interested in exploring that, um, you're more than welcome to come as well. Uh, between the ages of 14 and 35. So Yes, it's coming up very soon, and we encourage everybody to come out. And if you have any questions at all, you can email us, call us, check out the website. If you live in Winnipeg, you can get involved in the organizing. Um, and there's also going to be consultations taking place across the country between now and um, mid-January in order to ask young women and young feminists across Canada, what is important to you and what do you want to see in the content? What do you want to see in the structure of this gathering? Because it's really important to us that it's decentralized um, and that women's voices are incorporated and heard into the content because it's by young women for young women. And it's not just Winnipeg's gathering, but it's a gathering for all women across the country. Is there a specific contact email or website or phone number that people can call to find yes. out about this? Um, the email is rebels at femrev.org, R-E-B-E-L-L-E-S at F-E-M-R-E-V.org. And the website is www.rebels.org. And the phone number is 204-942-7390. Okay, perfect. Uh, thanks, Sarah Kay, for speaking with us today. Um, and we will keep our eyes out for what happens with the gathering in May 2011. Great. Thanks so much. Okay. Have a good night. Bye. <laughs> Bye. This week, thanks to an amazing investigative report by Winnipeg Free Press reporter Helen Falding, 
Manitobans became aware that thousands of residents on reserves in the northern parts of the province are living in third-world conditions without running water and having to make do with outhouses. To talk to us about this situation and what can be done, Alert has contacted Ron Evans, who is Grand Chief for the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs. A priest in the Anglican Church of Canada, Ron Evans was born and raised in Norway House and has served as a band counselor and chief. He's uh, speaking to us today to tell us a little bit about the recent report on the state of water and sanitation services in First Nations communities and uh, some of the efforts that uh, he's putting forward to address them. So welcome to Alert, uh, Ron Evans. Yes, uh, good day. Uh, it's, uh, it's, I'm pleased to be able to uh, be on your show to... Uh uh, share with uh, your audience uh, of the challenges that we have in the, in the First Nation communities. Yes, why don't you tell us a little bit about those challenges? They've been rec- Manitobans have rec- recently been reminded, if not woken up, to the reality of uh, just how uh, bad some of these communities are in terms of the inadequate uh, facilities available. Uh, do you feel that the recent Free Press uh, report has accurately uh, explained that away? Yes, uh, you know we commend the free press and uh, and and, the, and those that were involved in uh, doing the stories on the free press, uh, Helen Falding and uh, and and others uh, for doing the stories because they pretty much uh, reflect uh, the realities uh, in those communities, the need to address the issues of uh, clean drinking water and uh, the need for uh, good uh, sewage uh, treatment treatment plants. How long has these uh, problems persisted in these communities? Oh, they've been uh, going on for years uh, because the communities have been uh, under. They've, they've been trying their best uh, with uh, the underfunding. You know, they're dealing with uh, programs and services that are underfunded, uh, and so to try to meet uh, the need, the needs of a growing population, the needs, you know, um, uh, the, the the conditions of of, of poverty and uh, uh, the overcrowding in homes, um, the uh, the lack of proper roads. The lack of uh, uh, the lack of many things, um, uh, you know, they, they don't have uh, running water, and uh, a good uh, the, um, almost half the community's got no running water, uh, and and you're expected to uh, uh, you know provide a healthy environment. Uh, you have uh, high cost uh, of just to even purchase uh, your basic uh, your, your basic needs, you know, uh, because of the air air freight cost to deliver. Uh, uh, the necessary uh, uh, goods into those communities, and with the climate change uh, that we're experiencing, uh, the winter road season is becoming shorter and shorter. There's a short window, and as we look out uh, our windows here in the city, uh, you know it's November 16th, and there's no snow, and there's not really much cold weather. Cold weather is not in the forecast, mm-hmm. at least not in the next little while, where uh, it could allow for for the for, for the cold to start uh, uh, penetrating uh, uh, the, the, the muskegs and, and the lakes so that they can freeze, so that they can be an early winter road system. So you're dealing with all these, all these issues, and, um, and that creates very, uh, uh, it's very stressful for the leadership that's expected to uh, deliver uh, 
uh, you know, uh, the, to meet the expectations of... Uh, I mean, meeting expectations, like, let's uh, talk a little bit about how, uh, in terms of these, this lack of water and sanitation, those of us who take it for granted don't necessarily understand what that means in, in real terms to, to, to ordinary people. And, and how are you seeing this manifesting, uh, given how important water is uh, for well, all of us? The expectations, of course, uh, the expectations that the leadership have is their people expect them to provide good homes for them. Uh, they expect their people to uh, provide running water into their homes. They're expected to deal with the overcrowding so that, uh, so that the families can uh, uh, ensure that they can raise their families in a healthy environment. Uh, they're expected to uh, do their best to uh, bring down the, the high cost of, uh, of their foods, uh, they're expected to try and deal with uh, uh, the the need to get roads built into their communities. And if you don't have, if you're living in a in a household with uh, uh, that was built for you know a family of four or five, and now all of a sudden you're dealing, you have two families or two or three families living in the same home, uh, using the same uh, facilities, uh, then that that creates a lot of stress. And so how do you uh, how do you uh, uh, how can you uh, r- raise children in an environment and provide them uh, uh, in a way that you, you, one needs to to prepare them for school every day, and making sure that they're that they you know they're they're showered or they have a bath, uh, there's clean facilities for them to use. It must also be concerns about public health, right? Well, yeah. Well, of course, the, the, you know that is the result of that the, the lack of running water, the lack just to be able to. Uh, have just running water in itself, uh, that creates, uh, from there, creates all kinds of health problems because you still have to wash your clothes, you still have to clean your home, you know, you still have to, you still need food, uh, good water to cook your food. And so uh, when you're uh, living in a home that's got uh, more people than uh, what the home was built for, that creates all kinds of problems. And so those are the realities that our leaders are, are dealing with. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, uh, the federal government uh, needs to uh, uh, work with the communities, work with the province uh, in uh, doing what is necessary to deal with those issues. Because uh, if we don't deal with those issues, mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're, only, they're, they're only going to worsen. And, uh, and, uh, and what's going to happen is uh, we'll, we'll all feel the, uh, uh, you know, everyone's going to feel the impact mm-hmm. of that because... Um, if the road's going to take 30 years, as has been predicted by the uh, by the provincial government to connect or the, those those communities to the main road, uh, then uh, the population will likely triple by by then in in, in 30 years, you know, double, mm-hmm. uh, and the problems will worsen if you're not be if you're not able to meet the the needs at this time. And so, as a result, uh, how do how do you deal with that? You know, how are we going to uh, uh, you know what do you what should we expect the leaders to do when there's very little support for them? Okay, well let's talk about what the federal government has been doing. Uh, according to the the Free Press article, uh, they quoted the Library of Parliament saying that uh, since 1995, about 3.5 to to 4 billion dollars have been spent to try to remediate these problems, and it doesn't seem to have done. Uh, an adequate job. So, is, is this a question of the money being misspent, or or the p- well, money uh, not uh, enough being well, spent? Or well, I think one needs to break down the number. I mean, uh, 
you can you know that might sound like a big number if you're if you're if, if it's meant for uh, uh, if you're saying it, it. It depends in terms of uh, how you how you uh, uh, project that, right? Is it is is the money for Manitoba alone, or is it is that is that money for nationwide, right? For right across the country, because if you break it down, and uh, then it it's actually very little that goes into the communities. Although it sounds like a big number, but when you break the number down, what each community gets, there's actually very little there. It's it's, it's not enough to deal okay. with uh, those issues that uh, you know that we talk about. Okay, so some of the the simple suggestions that you could put forward, I believe one of them what, that you recommended was uh, like having to do with construction would be uh, longer terms for for chiefs. Uh, is that uh, um, L- longer longer terms uh, for chiefs is uh, one uh, is one uh, solution uh, allowing for the chiefs to bring stability into their communities so that they can make uh, they can make t- you know uh, hard decisions and that also allows them to uh, uh, meet with uh, uh, the business community and other governments uh, thereby uh, uh, you know giving assurance to those that want to invest and work in those communities that there's going to be leadership that you can work with for uh, uh, you know for a long period because because you have to build relationships uh, it's all about relationships. If you can build long-term relationships, then uh, then that's what you can build your community upon. You know, uh, and if you don't have time to build your network and uh, establish good relationships on the outside, then and then uh, it makes it very difficult for uh, outside investors to want to uh, invest in in the communities. Well, and so what we have to do is, uh, uh, you know, allow for stability and credibility to. Uh, 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 we we have to allow for those things to happen, right? So that uh, we well, need to stabilize. What what's preventing us from uh, achieving that now? Well, we need. Uh, well, right now, uh, some of the communities are still under the Indian Act, and uh, they're only two years, uh, and it's staggered, right? It's uh, there's staggered elections. Like there's a commu- there's we have elections every month here in this province, First Nation elections. Uh, we have we still have 37 Indian Act. Bands in, in in Manitoba that are under Section 74 of the, of the Indian Act, which means that they're only under a two-year term. And so, when you're under a two-year term, it uh, you become a high risk. You know, you, you're seen as high risk by investors and and others that want to uh, work with your community, because many of the projects, many of the initiatives, take anywhere from three to five years before you actually get a shovel in the ground. If you're if you're thinking of any kind of infrastructure, you're going to do any kind of major infrastructure in your community, and so if you have, if you're if you deal with a community that's only got two years, and, and and what they're proposing is going to take longer than that, then then uh, you know it's a tough call for the for those that want to help those communities, but they don't know if uh, those leaders will get reelected, and so that's why we need to stabilize that. Uh, just uh, as we uh, close the interview, is there any other recommendations uh, that uh, you're really pushing for that uh, you believe would uh, help resolve these difficulties? Well, uh, you know, speaking of the Island Lake region, I think uh, one of the things that's got to happen is we got to get we got to connect the, those communities to the main road. That road has to be built because that's a major. Uh, uh, it, it, it's going to go a long ways in dealing with the issues, and uh, we need the federal government at the table, uh, and they need to uh, uh, be responsible and uh, honor uh, their obligations. So uh, uh, that's what we need. That's what's got to happen. 
Well, Chief Evans, I, I want to thank you very much for, for joining us today and uh, helping to uh, explain uh, some of the problems facing the uh, First Nations in this province and in this country. Thank you very much for joining us on Alert. Well, thank you very much for having me. And that was Chief Grand Chief Ron Evans of the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs. Hi, this is Mitch Podolik. This is Music is the Weapon. And today, once again, I'm bringing you songs about war. Of course, it's a big issue for us in Canada now. Canadians are still getting killed in this war in Afghanistan. And I thought we should reach into some of the history of, of war and the history of the British Empire and pretty much how they they would force people to go to war. Here's two great old songs. Uh, one of them, both of them about, about people being coerced to be in the military. In one of these songs, the military coerced the guy, and in one of these songs, they took care of business pretty well. Here's this wonderful old Irish song, Arthur McBride. I had a first cousin called Arthur McBride He and I took a stroll down by the seaside A seeking good fortune and what might betide T'was just as the day was a-dawning Then after resting we both took a tramp We met Sergeant Harper and Corporal Cramp Besides the wee drummer who beat up for camp With this rowdy-dow-dow in the morning He says, my young fellows, if you will enlist A guinea, you quickly shall have in your fist Besides a crown, for to kick off of the dust And drink the king's health in the morning Had we been such fools as to take the advance The wee bit of more, we had to run chance For you think it no scruple to send us to France Where we would be killed in the morning He says, my young fellows, if I hear but one word, I instantly now will out with my sword, and into your bodies as strength will afford. So now, my gay devils, take warning. But Arthur and I, we took in the odds. We gave them no chance for to launch out their swords. Our whacking shillelaghs came over their heads and paid them right smart in the morning. For the wee drummer, we rifled his pouch And we made a football up his rowdy-dow-dow And into the ocean, to rock and to roll And batted a tedious returning As for the old reindeer that hung by his side We flung it as far as we could in the tide To the devil I pitch you, says Arthur McBride To temper your steel in the morning
Oh, Mrs. McGrath, the sergeant said, Would you like to make a soldier out of your sun tanned? With a scarlet coat and a big cocked hat, Mrs. McGrath, wouldn't you like that with me too? Raya, father, riddle da, to raya, raya, raya. Now, Mrs. McGrath lived by the seashore, for the space of seven long years or more. She saw a big ship sailing into the bay. Here's my son Ted, would you clear the way with me to Raya, Father Riddle Da, to Raya, Raya, Raya. Oh, Captain, Captain, where have you been? Have you been sailing on the Mediterranean? Have you got any tidings of my son Ted? Is the poor boy living or is he dead with me to Raya, Father Riddle Da, to Raya, Raya, Raya? Then up steps Teddy without any legs, and in their place he had two wooden pangs. She kissed him a dozen times or two, Send glory be to Moses, sure I couldn't be you with me to Raya, Father Riddle Da, to Raya, Raya, Raya. Now, were you drunk or were you blind when you left your two fine legs behind? Or was it while walking on the say a big fish at your legs from the knees away with me to Raya, Father Riddle Da? To Raya, Raya, Raya. Now I wasn't drunk and I wasn't blind when I left me two fine legs behind. But a big cannonball on the fifth of May swept me two fine legs from the knees away with me to Raya, Father Idelda. To Raya, Raya, Raya. Ah, Teddy, me boy, the widow cried. Them two fine legs were your mammy's pride. Them stumps of a three wouldn't do at all. Why didn't you run from the big cannonball with me to Raya, Father Idelda, to Raya, Raya, Raya? All foreign wars I do proclaim between Don John and the King of Spain. And by herdens I'll make them rue the time They swept the legs of a child of mine With me to Raya, Father Idelda To Raya, Raya, Raya Oh, then if I had you back again I'd never let you go to fight the King of Spain For I'd rather meet Ted as he used to be than the King of France and his whole navy with me to Raya, Father Idelda, to Raya, Raya, Raya. That was Sean Doyle with Mrs. McGraw, and before that, the wonderful song Arthur McBride. And now I want to play you a song by a, a train engineer who lives down in Kansas City, sings the Odd Folk Song Festival sings great songs, knows most of the dirty body ballads in the world. But Bob Succio is a very political, political guy, a great union man, right to the core of his being. And him and his wife Diana have been performing together for maybe 40 years. Here is one of the most political songs I've heard in the last period of time. 
Here is Bob and Diane Sukio with Sins of the Father. Another Humvee hits an IED And therewith the damage it did Another young soldier who can't hold a lover Or play patty cake with a kid The quick action team gets him out of the field Back to the States to get buried or healed The sins of the father live on in the sun and they're still coming back from the war They fly in at night under pale moonlight Where the doctors are all standing by In a preemptive mood to patch up a wound And salvage another GI Another of ours that won't dance anymore Another young soldier come back from the war Sins of the father live on in the sun And they're still coming back from the war The Pentagon brief never talks about grief Or the soldier come back from the war Or what he might need while he's at Walter Reed Or the reason they sent him there for Another young soldier got shot up and screwed what will you pay for a barrel of crude? The sins of the father live on in the sun And they're still coming back from the war now Time has a way of slipping away To a place where the memories fade Except for the few that still pass in review Or march at the veterans parade Another old soldier still there in the past Watching the flag going by at half-mast The sins of the father live on in the sun And they're still coming back from the war The sins of the father live on in the sun The sins of the father live on in the sun the sins of the father live on in the sun And they're still coming back from the war Nineteen miles to Baghdad Bye. 
That was Lizzie West with 19 Miles to Baghdad, and before that, Bob and Diane Succhio with Sins of the Father. And that's it for this week, folks. Keep on picking. Oppose the war. Bring the troops home. Well, that's our show. Thanks for being with us. We'll be back again next week at this time. If you wish to send your feedback, email alert at canadiandimension.com. Alert is podcast on rabble.ca and archived at canadiandimension.com. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. Technical producer is Tommy Allen, assisted by Selena Serbinuk. Alert headlines by Chris Webb. Around the Left in Seven Days by Ben Wood. Music is the Weapon by Mitch Podolik. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio has been a production of the Canadian Dimension magazine.